What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And here we are on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN for another edition of Call to Communion. We are very glad that you're here for us because we are here for you, especially all of you non-Catholics who have a question or two about the Catholic faith, trying to get an answer for that question, not quite sure who to turn to. Well, look, here we are. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email 24-7. The address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery, our producer, Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener, Jeff Burson is on social media. If you would like to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming on both platforms right now. Just put your question in the comments box, and then uh, Jeff will send it here to us in the studio, and we'll hopefully get it answered on today's program. I'm Tom Price. Very glad that it is Friday. Very glad to be with... Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. What's uh, what's in the uh, what's in the plans for the weekend? Well, you know, I I love my family very much, and they love having me around, and I usually get a very long to do list. So, so off off I've, you go. I've got the to do list. <laughs> you know, normally we put up our tree. I think I mentioned this once uh, on Gaudete Sunday, the third Sunday of Advent. But we don't have much of an Advent this year. It's uh, a little bit truncated. So I think we're going to put it up either this weekend or next weekend. Uh, I'll let you know how that goes. All right. Very good. Here's an interesting email from Richard. He says, I just finished talking to a Latter-day Saints member, a member of the Mormon Church. When I asked her how she knew what books are in the Bible, she said they use the Leningrad Codex. (laughs) I said, how do they know that that list is inspired? She said, Well, by historical review. So can you compare the Leningrad Codex to the Catholic Old Testament? That's from Richard. Um, yeah, uh, well, okay, so I personally am not an expert in in the manuscript tradition. Uh-huh. My understanding is the Leningrad Codex is the oldest complete manuscript of the Hebrew Bible huh. um, that uses the Masoretic text. Okay. Mm. Um, now, uh, one thing you have to understand about the way biblical manuscripts work is to have a complete codex, that is, codexes are like ancient books, where you okay. have all the books bound together under one cover. Uh-huh. Um, you, you could have a complete codex and say, well, this is the oldest codex, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it contains the oldest copies of individual books, hmm. right? So, okay. so we have pieces and fragments, we have whole books of the Bible, and we have pieces and fragments of the books of the Bible that are much older than the oldest codex. Uh, and so modern biblical scholars don't work this way. They, they don't, when, when they go to compile a modern translation of the Bible, they don't do it from a single codex. Uh, what they will do is they will take all the oldest texts of a, of a, of a biblical book, uh, whether those are fragmentary or complete, and they apply the tools of lower textual criticism to try to get at what is the best reading. 
and they they may consult codices like the Leningrad Codex, uh-huh. but those are much later than the earliest texts that we have. The or, the oldest texts of the Old Testament that we have in our possession, scholarly right now, are those that were discovered in Qumran, the so-called Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm. And so modern Old Testament scholarship relies heavily upon the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, as well as the Masoretic tradition, and to a certain extent the Septuagint, because we have copies of the Septuagint that are older than the oldest Masoretic text. And so you, you, you compare and contrast and try to get the best reading. Um, so, yeah. Okay. I, I think it's fascinating that the Leningrad Codex is older than Leningrad. Because when did they rename it from St. Petersburg? I think it wasn't in the 40s or the 50s oh, or yeah. the 30s. Yeah, sure. Something like that. Here's a question now from John. Dr. Anders, on your program uh, earlier this week, you emphatically and forcefully proclaimed that not one person in the church believed in sola fide prior to Martin Luther. Well, that's an interesting claim, but I wonder how you'd explain the following quote from Jerome in his commentary on Romans 10.3. Quote, when an ungodly man is converted, God justified him through faith alone, not on account of good works, which he possessed not. Thanks, John. Yeah, thanks. I'm perfectly well aware of texts like this from Jerome and other fathers. You have to ask what Jerome means by all the relevant words. Uh, right, because I, I mean, the the language of faith and faith alone and justification floats around in Christian history, mm-hmm. but Luther construes those terms according to a peculiar theory um, that uh, the, the two kinds of righteousness that Luther talked about in fifteen nineteen, the idea that there's an imputed righteousness. Uh, that is an alien righteousness, that God counts the person as righteous for Christ's sake, apart from the question of the renovation of that particular individual's moral life. Uh, and then the exterior righteousness, the sort of uh, the, the civil righteousness, the lived righteousness of their, of their acts and deeds. And for Luther, what counts is this imputed righteousness, this alien righteousness, not your actual good behavior. Drum didn't think that. Augustine didn't think that. None of the fathers thought that. So when scholars like Alistair McGrath, who's a Protestant, by the way, writes that Luther's doctrine is a complete theological novum, a total innovation. He's not talking about the use of the term justification or faith or even faith alone. Uh-huh. He's talking about the meaning that Luther gave to those terms, the peculiar Protestant accent that is the point of controversy with Catholics. Now, if someone wanted to say to me, you know, Anders, aren't we saved by faith alone? Uh, could I agree with that statement? If you let me put a Catholic spin on those words, I have no problem with them. Because the way I understand that, the way I think St. Paul means this in the book of Romans, is that through faith, as opposed to the Mosaic law, Mm -hmm. we're counted as members of Christ's body, the Church, and given the gift of the Holy Spirit, who renovates our interior life, causing us to become actually holy? Mm. So faith, it's faith as opposed to works of the law— insofar as faith is the medium that gives us this gift of grace that changes us. That's different from the Protestant view, where grace is not so much a renovation of my moral life as it is an imputation of an alien righteousness, and I'm accounted righteous for Jesus' sake, not because of something wrought within me. The the technical vocabulary of this is an imputed righteousness versus an infused righteousness. The Catholic position is the infused righteousness of Christ. The Protestant position is the imputed righteousness of Christ. And, uh, and they're, they're radically different concepts. And my contention, and that of other scholars, is that the notion of imputed righteousness, Luther's peculiar contribution, is unique to Luther. It's not found in the first 1,500 years of the uh, Church. All right. And, uh, John, we hope that's illuminating for, for you. In a moment, we're going to be talking with Josh in Vancouver, Washington. A couple lines open. If you would love to grab one, well, this is your opportunity. 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. 
called to communion in progress on this uh, Friday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, perhaps you would like to explain to us uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. Maybe you're down to the one-yard line like a good old SEC football game, and you're thinking, you know, there's this one little thing. Let's talk about that. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We're going to get to the phones in a moment. Let me tell you about a new book now available from EWTN Publishing, Mother Angelica's Lessons on Genesis. Now, this book is drawn from Mother's popular biblical spirituality TV series that you may have seen over the years. Through her personal accounts and down-to-earth reflections, you will enter into each passage experiencing God's love and guidance like never before. Mother's life lessons will show you how to stop looking back in order to look ahead and how to enjoy the promises of God. You'll see the importance of consulting the Lord in all things and the power of your prayers in helping convert sinners even at the very last moment of their lives. A lot of great stuff in this book, Mother Angelica's Lessons on Genesis. And it's available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. I personally think it would make a fantastic Christmas gift. You may want to check that out. Mother Angelica's Lessons on Genesis. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning here with Josh in uh, Vancouver, listening on Mater Day Radio. Hey, Josh, what's on your mind today, sir? Good morning. Howdy. I have a question about, uh, about the process of beatification. I'm, I had a discussion with a Polish, a Polish Catholic weeks ago, and she told me about the beatification of an entire family, the first time in history that that has ever happened, uh, the Olma family from eastern Poland during the Holocaust, who protected Jews. Now, it took about 20 years for their beatification. I look at somebody like Sir Thomas More, who was beheaded for with upholding the Pope's edict against Henry VIII's remarriage and divorce. Mm-hmm. His beatification took 400 years. And Pope John Paul II, it seems that he was beatified a day after he died. So what, I mean, how do I look at these disparate years, uh, and what, what is really going on in beatification? It's kind of mysterious to me. Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> I appreciate the question. So what you should not conclude is that the length of time required for beatification or canonization, that that length of time has anything to do with the holiness of the person as opposed to some other beatified or canonized person, right? So anyone who's beatified is, has lived a virtuous, heroic life. Anyone who's canonized, we know for sure, is in heaven and can be fit, can be venerated by the faithful. Um, but, uh, uh, but the speed at which someone a- achieves that public recognition has more to do with either popular acclaim or with uh, you know, some some papal prudential judgment about what a particular pope thinks would be edifying and needful at a particular time. I'll give you an example. Uh, blessed John Duns Scotus died in the year 1308. He was beatified by Pope John Paul II in, I think, 1992. Wow. So what is that, 684 yeah. years yeah. went by before yeah. he was beatified? Um, and it, it's not like the evidence was building and building for 684 years, right? Um, rather, Pope John Paul II had a particular interest in, in John Duns Scotus and thought that his life and works 
were particularly relevant in the modern era as an answer to the problem of atheism. Ah. So Scotus was an apologist and a scholastic theologian who wrote uh, in the in the 13th century a massive treatise on the defense of the idea of the existence of God on Scotus's De Primo Principio, on the mm-hmm. first principle, mm-hmm. that if you've ever read Thomas's Five Ways, which I prefer, by the way, um, you'll note that just in length of pages, I mean, Scotus's attacking of the problem is just much more detailed and thorough than Thomas's in the Summa, and and he, I mean, he he is big on that issue of the rationality of belief in God, um, and so John Paul just said, hey, you know, this would be a great guy for people to venerate and get to know. Let's let's put him on the map, so to speak. Um, you know, when it comes to uh, say the the uh, canonization of John Paul himself, well, he was just a supremely popular pope, and so I mean. He, he, his, his corpse was still warm, and people in Rome were, were crying out, uh, what is it, subito santo, like, yes. make this guy a saint tomorrow, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the, this, this, this idea of popular acclaim, that's how saints were made. Well, that's not how they were made. That's how they were canonized in antiquity. Before there was an official papal procedure for canonization, it was by popular acclaim. And it's good for the faithful to have exemplars of Christian holiness to look up to. Um, and so that that popularizing element is a is a is a reasonable one. You know, I mean, if you don't let them venerate saints, they're going to venerate pop stars, right? So let's let's take that impulse and put it into something that's edifying. It doesn't. I mean, obviously there are many holy people whose lives will never be a matter of public recognition, and they will never advance, you know, to that kind of recognition by the church. They're not going to uh, be canonized. They're not going to be beatified. It doesn't mean they're not in heaven. Uh, it just means it may not be. Uh, prudent or useful or, or significant enough in, a, in, in that PR kind of way to, to raise them to the altar. I mean, I remember reading an article years back about whether or not G.K. Chesterton could be canonized. And uh, interesting arguments against it. One of them is that apparently Chesterton was a bit of a glutton. Uh, yeah. You know, he was yeah. a big, hefty man. Big and, guy. Uh, and, uh, you know, was known to overindulge. They say, ah, you know, probably not. <laughs> but we've got other fat saints. Oh, yeah. You know. Oh, yeah. Well, Aquinas... Yeah, and uh, John the Twenty Third. That that's absolutely true. You know, so there's a story about John the Twenty Third. One time he was walking in the Vatican Gardens, and uh, and some you could see him from the streets of Rome. And this woman is outside the Vatican. She looks through and she says, "Oh my goodness, he's fat." And uh, he heard her, and he wanders over to the fence, and he says, "But surely, good woman, you must know the conclave is not a beauty contest." Ooh, love that. Yeah. That's great, Josh. Thank you so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's eight three three. Two eight eight three nine eight six. By the way, there's a very good movie called Blessed John Scotus. Uh, it's available on uh, Religious Catalog. Uh, Adrienne and I watched that, oh, maybe a year ago. Really, really enjoyed it. Well, I'm glad you liked it. Indeed. Let's go to Larry in South Dakota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Larry, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi. I'm just calling about, I listened, was listening to you all the other day on the 29th, and uh, just a little caveat here. I was raised Southern Baptist and converted over to Catholicism about 25 years ago. Uh And uh, we were talking about the two different beliefs on why Christ came down here. One was a punishment, and one was uh, uh, the Catholic view. As a Southern Baptist, and every Protestant I ever knew believed the same thing, that this was God loving us, that he uh, sacrificed his son. And I know you didn't say all Protestants, but I got it when it said 
Protestants believe this and Catholics believe that. You understand where I'm coming from? Oh, sure, sure. And look, I, I, I also grew up in the... Uh, fundamentalist South, surrounded by Southern Baptists. I didn't grow up Southern Baptist myself, but my relatives were all Southern Baptists, and they were our friends, and I, I know this tradition extremely well, and it was very similar to what I grew up in. Every one of those people, including in my own church, would have said that Christ died you know, as an expression of God's love. And the favorite verse to quote would have been John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he has only gotten sons so who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Absolutely they presented the atoning of the, the atonement of the death of Christ as a response to God's love. But the way the theory works is God, they would say it's something like this, God loves us and wants to save us, but he is constrained by the necessity of his own nature to punish sin, and God hates sin. And, and, uh, and so God's kind of in a quandary. He'd like to save us, but he can't because he's so wrathful at sin. Now, that, that element of wrath um, can be more or less emphasized in the Protestant tradition. I mean, you hear about the, the hellfire brimstone preachers that love to go on about hell. And uh, uh, in, in Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, he actually uses a metaphor and says that you are more loathsome to God than the vilest serpent is in your eyes. Wow. Right? Um, but he would have believed John three sixteen at the same mm, time. Yeah. So it's a little bit schizophrenic here, a little bit, uh, you know, how can you hold these two ideas mm-hmm. of kind of a cognitive dissonance? How can God love you and yet be and yet be infinitely wrathful at you such that he can't save you without punishing somebody? So I concede Protestant, uh, uh, Protestant evangelism always emphasizes the love of God, but, uh, but, the, but the death of Christ is presented as a response to the problem of divine wrath and anger at sin. Mm. Is that helpful for you, Larry? Uh, yeah, and I just want to say that I've never heard that as being raised in the church, in the Baptist church, and I can see where you might come that way. You know, I've left churches because of the way they talked about Catholics. I just don't want to see people come back and reverse that and go, well, I'm not going to listen to Catholics because of what they say about the Protestants. <laughs> yeah, sure. So let me get one thing straight. All right, and this is a fundamental difference between the way I live as a Catholic from the way I lived as a Protestant. Um when I was a Protestant, I thought that people who were Catholic were going to hell in virtue of being Catholic. I thought that people that practiced Catholicism were evil in virtue of practicing Catholicism. I thought of Catholicism as a, as a bad religion that made people bad, uh, and that if you did it, you were bad, right? Um, and, uh, and so I had a, a really kind of hubristic, uh, prejudiced attitude towards Catholics. Um, I am now a Catholic. Uh, I regret those attitudes that I had about Catholics, and I regard them as wrong. Now, here's the irony. I thought Catholics were bad for practicing Catholicism before I was Catholic. I now think I was bad for thinking that. Mm. So am I reversing it? Am I saying that, you know, if you're a Protestant who hates Catholics, that your Protestantism is making you bad in the same way that I thought that Catholics were bad? Well, there's a kind of superficial similarity there, because I recognize that in my own Protestant experience, there was something about my doctrine that, in fact, deformed my ability to express charity, right? Um, but as a Catholic, I now look at Protestants and think, I'm not going to pass judgment on their moral character, nor am I going to pass judgment on the question of their salvation. So I don't look at any man, woman, or child and say, you're going to hell because you're not like me. I would never do that. Um, I, I leave the question of the judgment of souls up to God. Furthermore, I'm not going to look at any man, woman, or child and say that you are less virtuous than I am 
just in virtue of the religion that you practice. So if somebody says I'm Southern Baptist or I'm Presbyterian or what have you, I'm not going to conclude from that that they are not a virtuous person. Um, now, it may be the case that someone lacks virtue, and it might be the case that they lack virtue because of some particular ideas that they hold. So again, to take an example, when I was Protestant, I thought that it didn't matter how I lived my moral life because I was saved by faith alone. The belief that I was saved by faith alone caused me to be lackadaisical about my moral life. Mm -hmm. So there was a causal influence. I mean, the, the fact that I was taught you don't have to earn your way, you're in salvation made me careless and heedless about my moral life. That was a shame. And so I'm very subtle about this. As a Catholic, I can recognize, yeah, if you hold certain ideas, it may lead you to certain behaviors, and that's regrettable, at least it did in my case. But I'm going to wait until you demonstrate to me that your character is, in fact, bad before I form that judgment. See, bigotry, when we talk about bigotry, bigotry is an unfounded, unwarranted negative assessment of somebody mm -hmm. because they fall in a certain group. Yeah. It would be bigoted of me to say of a Protestant, you are bad because you're Protestant. I'm never going to say that. But that doesn't mean that someone won't be bad. <laughs> right? Sure, you sure. Know? And, and ideas have consequences. And so, as a Catholic today, I believe that what unites us to God and to one another is charity. That's an idea that can have positive consequences. When I was not Catholic, I did not believe that. I did not think that it was charity or virtue that united us to God and one another. And that idea had negative consequences in my life. But I'm not going to say that it's having a negative consequence in your life unless you show me that you lack charity or virtue. Larry, a great call. Thanks so much for checking in from South Dakota. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We have a couple lines open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Let's go to Paul now in Olympia, Washington, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, I had a question about uh, Protestants that receive a valid baptism. I understand that they are still considered members of the body of Christ, though they're not in communion with the Catholic Church. They don't practice the Catholic faith. But just as well, um, from a technical or fundamental level, are they still considered Catholic by virtue of the fact that they are indeed members of the body of Christ through the baptism? In an extended sense, in an extended sense. So um, I'm going to see if I can find this quote. Um, this is one I want to share with you, members versus communion. Uh, John Carroll, who was the um, uh, important prelate in early American Catholic history, and I can't find the quote. I wanted to pull it up for you, uh, draws a wonderful distinction between being in communion with the Catholic Church and being a member of the Catholic Church. Mm. And he says that not all of the members are in communion. Right, and so he would recognize, and this is true of the church universally, that you can be you can be sacramentally conformed to Christ and made a member of Christ's body, the church, uh, through baptism, without without entering into full communion, and and so the way the Second Vatican Council puts it is, we talk about elements of truth and sanctification that exist outside the formal boundaries of Catholicism. Uh -huh. And, uh, and, and those can be more or less diffuse, depending on how more or less remote they are from the center of Catholic unity, the Eucharist. So, you know, the atheist who has a conscience and follows his conscience, uh -huh. um, and, uh, and probably some of the precepts of the natural law, is someone that has some of the elements of Catholic truth, but lacks many. 
um, you know, the Orthodox Christian who differs with us maybe only about the jurisdiction of the Pope uh-huh. on everything else he has the same. He's closer to the center of Catholic unity. And so we can talk about degrees of, of membership, sure. you know, versus full communion. Hey, Paul, great question. Thanks so much for checking in. In a moment, we'll talk with Dan in Vancouver, Michael in Cincinnati. Lines open for you at 833-288-3986. It's called a communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, look at this. Four lines open. You can snag one right now at 833-288-3986. Here is Dan now in the... Oh, I'm sorry. You were... I, I want to share that quote. I found the quote from John Carroll, Bishop John Carroll. That is so check. cool. I reference. So this is a quote from Bishop John Carroll. Uh, the first bishop in the United States. Yes. And he said, to be in communion of the Catholic Church and to be a member of the Church are two different things. They are in the communion of profession of her faith and participation of her sacraments through the ministry and government of her lawful pastors. The members of the Catholic Church are, listen to what he says, yeah. all those who with sincere heart seek the true religion and are in unfeigned disposition to embrace the truth wherever they find it. Wow. So... According to Bishop John Carroll, uh-huh. the membership of the church is a much larger category than those in communion with the church. Wow. Interesting, isn't it? That's a fantastic quote. So people that want to argue that the Second Vatican Council invented these notions, that this is a departure from tradition, it's not. Nope. It's not. Nope, at all. <clears throat> all right, now we're going to go to Dan, a first-time caller in Vancouver, also listening today on the great modern-day radio. Hey, Dan, what's on your mind today? Yes, hi. Thanks for uh, thanks for everything you do. By the way, I've listened to the radio for various times, but this is my first time. And I ran into a bind, and uh, and I guess into a very strong uh, a block or something, a wall that just was put right in front of me. Because I mean, I I listen to the. I mean, I read the Bible and everything. I mean, I've been a good Catholic for all my life. Mm-hmm. But there's one question that just kind of blocked me and kind of like uh, just grabbed me, you know, and uh, just don't understand it. You know, it's like, okay, I do understand of the question of, I mean, of, of Jesus, you know, coming to save all of us, you know. However, uh, this learning uh, to read the Bible, and, and I came to this verse, where it says that God is, God will punish up to the third generation for the sins of the Father. And that, I'm having a lot of trouble understanding that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I can can help you. I really appreciate it. So um, I would strongly recommend that you balance what you have read in the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, with what you will find in Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18, the prophet raises this exact question. <clears throat> if a man uh, is, is immoral, he defiles his neighbor's wife, he oppresses the poor, he commits robbery, he doesn't return what he took in pledge, he worships idols and does detestable things, the prophet says, will such a man live? No, he will not, because he's done these detestable things. But suppose he has a son who sees the sins that his father commits. 
and does not do such things, but instead does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, does not commit robbery, does not withhold his hand from the poor, he will not die for his father's sins, writes the prophet. He will surely live. The father will die for his own sins. The son will live. And so it directly repudiates the idea that, that God would punish the sons for the sins of the father. So how should we understand this text that you brought up when it says that God will punish the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation? And how do we balance that with Ezekiel 18? Well, the way I understand that is it is an empirical fact that when parents are foolish and stupid and wicked and evil, that their children suffer. Clearly. They suffer, you know. I mean, you, you, you read about families where there is, uh, where the family dy- dynamic leads to a pattern of abuse or neglect or mistreatment that can endure for generations through no fault of the offspring. But then they grow up and they do the same darn thing to their own kids. Mm-hmm. And it takes sometimes an extraordinary work of grace to break that cycle. So it's not that God is directly punishing offspring for the sins of the fathers, but in those instances, and we see them all around us all the time, the father's bad judgment does have negative consequences for the moral formation of the children, which can be learned habitually and then passed down to generations. All right. We hope that's helpful for you, Dan. Thanks so much for checking in in Vancouver. Here is Michael now in Cincinnati, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio AM 740. Michael, what's on your mind today, sir? Thank you, gentlemen. Um, that's holy fide, fide um, note that you were making previously just brought to my mind uh, what I'm wrestling with, how to communicate with my dad and my mom about why we left the Catholic faith in 1981 um, and why we need to trust how Jesus is forming our faith through the Church. He, my dad, he's 84. I love him to death. He's, he's got a ministry with, uh, that I'm taking over to feed the poor with um, uh, 22 food pantries where we pick up bread wow. voluntarily. So I, but the thing is this, is um, I think he felt like I'd be, I, I broke his heart here um, two years ago when I said, Dad, I feel like it was wrong for us to leave the Catholic faith, that it was providential that we were there. And we and we just didn't have our answers. We couldn't get our uh, our questions answered. And and then he had three evangelical path, uh, ministers where he worked here at Procter and Gamble. Just really helped sit him down and just say, "This is really what the Bible teaches and what faith is." And um and, and yet my dad was a leader in the parish, you know, with Curcio and. Mm-hmm. Uh, men's groups and 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 in the sim, I was in a Franciscan minor seminary, and it closed at the end of my junior. year. So how year can I help I, you, Michael? What can I do for you? Well, just I'm trying to help my dad without saying, Dad, we're in, we were in the sin of scandal, leaving Jesus' way of making us. So the, the question own. is, how do you communicate your 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 newfound interest uh, in the Catholic faith and your sense that the Catholic faith is the true church? How do you communicate that to your dad? So I, I'm going to tell you a story from my own life. I had a relative ask me one time, a close relative, should I become Catholic? And the problem was that I thought that no matter what I said, this relative would likely not become Catholic. So I thought, hmm, well, I'm certainly not going to tell 
this person no. Right. Because I think they should. But I don't want to tell them yes directly, because if I say, yes, you should become Catholic, and they don't, then I risk leaving them with a bad conscience. And the Church says, if you believe or understand that Catholic faith was established by Jesus and you leave it, you're in bad shape. So what do I do? What do I do? So I thought about it. I said, um, this was the answer I gave. I said, well, um, you know what I do. You know what I do. Meaning, you know, I'm on EWTN. Right. I have a show called Call to Communion. I mean, you know what I do. In other words, I am not going to try to be your conscience for you. Like, you know where I stand. Yeah. But I, I want the burden of making the decision to be yours. It has to be your choice to follow Christ in the Catholic faith, right? And, and you know, different people respond to argument about religion in different ways. There are people like me who found arguments for Catholicism to be very compelling, so compelling that I could not remain outside the Catholic Church with a good conscience. Uh, the, being Catholic was, for me, the only way I could be an intellectually honest and fulfilled Christian. I know plenty of other people who just don't operate that way. And and you could line up apologetical arguments all day long for them, and it's just like it's like just knocking on a concrete wall. They just—that's not how they respond. That's not how they function in the religious world. And there are other things that motivate them, whether it be, you know, close relationships or admiration or— for some people, it might even be architecture. I've known people who become Catholic because of architecture. I mean, really? like, yeah, I mean, it, 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 the, the act of faith is so deeply personal and wound around the questions of core identity mm-hmm. that I, I, don't wanna, I don't want to try to manipulate a person, um, you know, just through one form of approach and try to intellectually strong-arm them into the, into the religion. I really have to recognize that this has got to be a freely human choice that emerges out of the depth of their own identity and their wrestling with God, right? Um, so what I've come to, the position that I've come to, is when I'm dealing one-on-one with people, that I will try to manifest the goodness, truth, and beauty of Catholicism freely and genuinely and sincerely um, and hope to do what Jesus says when he says, be a light, so that I can be a light but not a sledgehammer. Yeah. Right and and trust that the Holy Spirit's at work in everyone, offering them grace, and the judgment of souls is left up to God, and uh, and so you know rather than trying to give you like the slam dunk argument to convince your father or the or the surefire way to convince him, uh, to me that's a failed enterprise. I, I, I rather what I ought to ask you is what's the best way you can love your father. Um, there's a wonderful story from Mother Teresa, who as you know would minister to dying Hindus. And she never tried to make them Catholic. She tried to help them find peace and goodness in their hearts, trusting that God would bring them to himself in the way that he knows best. And remember a story about Mother Teresa ministering to a woman who'd been left to die in the street by her son. And though she was in great physical suffering, her greatest suffering was that she was bitter at her son. And, uh, and Mother Teresa loved her and consoled her, but also encouraged her to forgive. And in her dying moments, this woman said, I forgive my son. And I remember when I was an evangelical Protestant, I heard that story, and my thought was, oh, what a shame. She didn't lead her in the sinner's prayer. She didn't get her to confess Christ, you know? And, uh, uh, you know, who cares about forgiveness? Because really all she needs is faith alone. Now, as a Catholic, I look back at that same story, and I say, that's a beautiful illustration of what it means to be Catholic. That because of Mother Teresa's faith in Christ, she was able to, in a kind of unhurried, 
an unanxious way just manifest goodness to this woman and help evoke it within this woman. And I think that's what we have to be to our non-Catholic relatives, just a source of blessing, truth, and goodness. If they want to ask us about our Catholic faith, then by all means, Peter says, be ready to give an answer about the hope that's in you. Why do you believe in the Pope? Why do you believe this view of justification? Why do you believe in the Mm -hmm. seven extra books of the Bible that Catholics are supposed to have? Yeah, be ready to give those kinds of answers. But uh, but more more importantly, just be ready to be. Mm. Be ready to be with and for your dad and show him that you're just as much uh, a devoted son as you ever were. Michael, you mentioned uh, also that uh, 1981 was the year that your family left the church. That was also the year that Mother Angelica started EWTN television. They just waited a year, man. That's right. (laughs) So close, so close. And then in 1992, EWTN radio stations like Sacred Heart Radio there in Cincinnati. You may want to just say, uh, you know, Dad, I've been listening to AM 740. You may want to check it out sometime. There's a there's a thought for you. It's called a communion. Thanks again, Michael, for your call. Hey, be sure to join us for EWTN Bookmark coming up tomorrow afternoon, 4.30 p.m. Eastern. Sister Mary Josepha, OSB, joining Doug Keck to share about The Brides of Christ, a new illustrated children's book by the Benedictine Sisters. Also, Kate Snyder talks about her children's book, Good Night, Jesus. And if you've ever read uh, Good Night, Moon, that wonderful children's book, uh, it's very much along those lines. Anyway, uh, check that out, EWTN Bookmark with Doug Keck, tomorrow at 4.30 p.m. Eastern, exclusively on EWTN Radio. Let's go to Noreen now in Wyoming, listening on the great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hi, Noreen. What's on your mind today? Hi. Um, So yesterday I heard someone say, God loves some people more than others. And I never heard that before. And um, because before I was Catholic, I was growing up in Protestant churches. And they always taught that God loves everyone the same. He he loves us us, uh, as an individual, like the most. Yet at the same time, he loves us all the same. But the guy was saying yesterday, like, uh, he loves Mary the most, and then he loves some people more than others. And I was like, wow, I never heard that. And so can I do things to make God love me more, or or what? Yeah, thank you so much, Ryan. I really appreciate the question. So here's what I would suggest, how I suggest you think about it. Um. God is infinite love. God is infinite love. How can I situate myself in the world so that I can participate more and more in that infinite love? Right? How can I be more infinitely loving? Well, I'm not going to be infinitely loving, but how can I be more loving? How can I be more patient? How can I be more kind? The more I can reflect uh, God's love myself to the people around me, the more I participate and share in God's love, right? Um now, some people are, by, like, some people do that better than others. We, just a few minutes ago, we were talking about Mother Teresa. Try as I might, I don't think I'm ever going to be as loving and kind as Mother Teresa is. Um, but um, here's an analogy. I'm a really bad musician. Tom Price is a much better musician than I am. And I his, wife, his wife, Adrian, ten times better, right? Yes, for I'm sure. a very bad musician. But I love music. I love it so much. And um, I'm a really bad guitarist. But if I sit down with my guitar and nobody else is around and nobody's listening, 
I can sit there and play that thing badly, and I get an incredible amount of pleasure and enjoyment out of it. But I'm never going to play guitar, you know, like some really good guitarist. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean that that uh, uh, my engagement with the beauty of music is going to be in any way deficient. Like, I'm still going to derive an awful lot of blessing and benefit from that. Um, as long as I am focused on, like, what I can do and I quit comparing myself to others. If I start comparing myself to, you know, Charlie Christian or somebody, then I'm, <laughs> then I'm just going to be sad, you know. And, and God puts all of us, St. Therese of Lisieux talked about um, uh, human life is like so many flowers in a flower garden. That's why she's called the little flower, because of that metaphor. And, you know, some flowers may have a really prominent position in the garden. Others may just be a tiny little petal, you know, at the top right corner. But it's all part of a big tapestry. And she said, you know, I'm content to just be that little petal. Yeah. And, and that's why we call it the little flower. And so the important thing is, where am I in my life? What's my vocation? It, how do I manifest holiness in my life? You know, if I'm president of the United States, which I'm not, that's going to be very different than if I'm, you know, just some little old dad living in Birmingham, Alabama. But I've got my sphere. I have my garden to cultivate. I have my people that I need to love. Let me just concentrate on on doing that, manifesting as much of God's love as I can in my little circumstance, and uh, and not compare myself to the great saints. That's the little way of St. Therese, right? And then, and then I'm going to have the full measure of happiness that God has for me, and it's going to be wonderful, you know? And so think of it that way, I yeah. think. Um, now, we'll say a word about Protestants saying that God loves everyone equally. Um, I'm, I'm glad to know that's what they taught in your tradition. I grew up a Protestant, and I became a Catholic. The tradition in Protestantism that I grew up in was called Presbyterianism, uh, sometimes called the Reformed tradition. And one of the bedrock teachings of the Presbyterian tradition, the Reformed tradition, was that God hates most people and loves only a small few, called the elect or the predestined. One of the reasons that I became Catholic is because Catholics reject that teaching. They teach that God loves everyone and wants everyone to be saved. Uh, but there definitely are Protestants that teach that God hates most people and loves a few. That they, that's what they taught in the church I grew up with that I left to become Catholic. Noreen, thanks so much for your call. It's uh, Dennis now in Colorado listening on uh, Sirius XM Channel 130. Dennis, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi. First time caller, listen forever. So thank you. Thank you. And a little background for me. I was a Catholic, and now I'm quote-unquote a Protestant, but I want to thank you, Doctor, what you said that uh, just because you're not the same religion, that doesn't necessarily mean you have uh, condemnation. And I'm glad because a lot of my Protestant friends think the same, that if they're not a Protestant, if you're a Catholic, you, you don't go to heaven, which is a bunch of fooey. But uh, so thank you for that. But my question is, I was. I just got in a car on Bluetooth. I just cut the very end of that, and you said something. You said, "Well, you know, well, heck, I'm a little nervous." Let me. That you thought that you know a lot of Protestants says, "Well, they can sin constantly because it's by grace only," and you're right. A lot. I always say the most misunderstood scripture is uh, Jesus died on the cross three days later is resurrected, and the only way is through the Father the Son. That's carte blanche to sin, but no. But as you know, St. Paul in one of his uh, epistles says, we believe the commandments uh, condemn, not saved. But, but then, and, and, and so Paul said, well, does that mean I can, I can send more so grace abound? And he's adamant. He says no. So I know you misunderstood. 
what the Protestants said. But don't everybody that I know a lot of my Catholic friends, they think you, you worship Mary, and we know you don't. So, I mean, I think that's more the individual thing against a carte blanche thing against the Protestant uh, religion, and we think that we can sin more because the Bible is it's exactly different. So that's my Yeah, comment. thanks. So I, thank I really you. profoundly appreciate the question, I mean, the comment. Um, I I would take issue with the charge that I understood that I misunderstood Protestantism. The reason I take umbrage at that remark is that I myself was raised Protestant. I went to a Protestant college and a Protestant seminary, and I wrote a doctoral dissertation on the leading Protestant theologian of the Reformation, John Calvin. And so I made mastering Protestant theology to be the principal concern of my life for about ten years. So I think I have an extremely good understanding of how Protestantism developed its various branches and, and, and differences, its doctrinal statements and leading figures, as well as its biblical exegesis, its various forms of biblical exegesis. So I really know Protestantism quite well. And I, I recognize that the vast majority of Protestants teach and believe that you should be good. Like, they're not amoralists, by and large. They don't, they don't advocate immorality. And, and they recognize, I know that Protestants recognize that Paul exhorts Christians to the life of holiness. And so Protestants also exhort people to the life of holiness. I recognize that. I understand that. But with a few exceptions, the basic underlying Protestant theory about the nature of salvation is, to quote Martin Luther, that God never smiled on a man for his charity or virtues. Luther wrote that in his commentary on the Galatians. Uh, it's, also, it's why Luther could write kind of tongue-in-cheek to Philip Melanchthon, his, his uh, collaborator, and say to Philip, go sin boldly. Now, did Luther really want a Melanchthon to go commit immoral acts? No, of course he didn't. But he wanted to embolden Melanchthon with the idea that if he were to commit an immoral act, mm-hmm. that it would not separate him from the love of God in consequence. And so that's, that's the fundamental Protestant thesis, that, that though you should be moral— acting immorally will not separate you from the love of God, and that you can be justified, that is, declared righteous by God, even if your moral life remains unreformed. And uh, this is what you call justification by faith alone, right? Yeah. So, I, fortunately, from in my judgment, Protestants are better than their theology, and many of them live holy and upright lives in spite of their belief that they don't have to to be saved. Um, and uh, and there are plenty of Catholics who live immoral and dissolute lives in spite of their belief that they should not do so for it could send them to hell. But the underlying truth of the doctrinal position is that there are these two divergent ways of understanding salvation. There's the Protestant way that believes that we are justified for Christ's sake by faith alone, and the Catholic view that through the grace of Christ we are transformed into the life of holiness, at least potentially, whereby God can judge us to be genuinely righteous. Dennis, thanks for your call from uh, Colorado. Let's go uh, right here to Alabama, Madison, Alabama. Here is uh, Deacon Tony now. Deacon Tony is on uh, line five, and he's listening on Facebook Live. Hey, Deacon Tony, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, thank you for taking my call, uh, second-time caller. And I love the show. I listen to it all the time. I, I've learned so much from Deacon, from Dr. Anders. Thank you. I have a... I have a very difficult question. I know that there might not be an answer to my question, but uh, maybe the only answer is to pray and to trust the Holy Spirit. But I am concerned about the division in our church uh, over the Pope, and I, it's just disheartening to me to listen to some Catholics, the way they talk about the Pope. And and I, I try to do what I can with my friends, I try to, try to uh, show them that they're listening to much 
fake news out there. Uh, nothing seems to work. I've, uh, nobody's listening. Uh, I gave a homily about a month ago defending the Pope, and I got some people upset with me. Uh, yeah. I might have lost what to do. I might have lost what to do with this. It's really, it's really bothering me. And okay. I, okay. I, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you. So, uh, Deacon, I really appreciate the call. Thank you for the kind words. Unfortunately, division in the Church over the person of the Pope is nothing new. It's been going on for a very long time. In the 14th century, in the 14th century, um, the the church actually split uh, governmentally right right down the middle uh, from like, 1378 to 1417. I wow. think we had what was called the, the the papal schism when there were actually two claimants to the See of Peter, one in Rome and and, and one in Avignon, and uh, and Europe Christendom was split right down the middle with one half following the, the legitimate pope and the other half following an anti-pope. And, uh, and those that were against the pope had the most outlandish theories to justify their position, and there were actually a group of radical Franciscans that were outside the main Franciscan order. They were called radical Franciscans that taught that the pope was the antichrist and the end of the world was upon us. These were Catholic thinkers, not Protestant thinkers. Wow. So Protestants picked that up from Catholics, actually. Mm. Um, and then, of course, throughout the, the centuries that have followed, I mean, you, 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 we, you know, the popes have been involved in, in ideological and political battles in Europe and Italy with, with, with France, with the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, we've got, you know, Holy Roman emperors that, that went down and tried to assault the pope personally and, and um, Philip... Uh, no, it was, um, I'm trying to think, uh, uh, yeah, Philippe Le Bel, the French, French king Philippe Le Bel, went and beat up Boniface VIII, and he later died from his injuries. So wow. this is not a new thing. And I think the response to it is that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, which is that he insists that we agree on everything and live in peace and harmony. And, and you can't say, I follow Peter, I follow Paul, I follow Ratzinger, I follow Bogolio. That kind of factional division, that ideological vision with the church is contrary to Catholic unity, and, uh, and whether you like the person of the Pope or not, whether you agree with the Pope's policies or not, the papacy is there to unite us as the body of Christ in charity, and, uh, and these ideological divisions have no place in our Catholic identity. Deacon Tony, thanks so much for your call. Sorry we couldn't get to Gary in Lakewood, Colorado. Gary, please call us back next week. We'll put you at the head of the line. Dr. David Anders, have a great weekend. Thanks, Tom. Hello. Hope to see everybody uh, right around here on Monday for another edition of Call to Communion. I'm Tom Price along with our great team. Hope you have that great week and we'll see you then. God bless.